Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Moving through the book of 1 Timothy, we saw Paul addressing the issue of some of the officers of the church, the bishops and deacons, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 3 last week. And now we come to a great and a majestic section, really, where he talks about the church and, and what we believe. And this is, I love this passage. Beginning with verse 14. He said, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul was concerned about Timothy personally, but he was especially wanting to help him in his role within the church. Now, we often hear people calling a church building, oh, that's the Lord's house. And sometimes we caution people against that because a building isn't holy, it's the people who come to it that are holy. But I think sometimes as Westerners, we can become a bit too individualistic in our understanding of, of Christianity. Christianity is each of us having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it is every, much, every bit as much also a corporate relationship that involves the church. And so Paul, in talking to Timothy about how the church operates, then talks about the church and actually calls it God's building. He calls it the program where God does what he does. And it's not only the church of the living God, but it's the pillar and ground of the truth. <coughs> church is where you learn the truth. Church is where you associate with others who believe that same truth. Church is a place where we come together and acknowledge our common faith. And it's something that is near and dear to the heart of God. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build individuals. He said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Church is vitally important. Now, it's important that we don't get the idea that it's just our church. I think a lot of times people's loyalty to their church is almost as their loyalty to a sports team, you know, yay for Pacific Hills, or yay, you know, we're the ones. And I, you know, really, you could be an Angel fan, but after tonight, if it's all over, <laughs> you get over it. I mean, I, I like the Angels. I love the Dodgers. I'm already over the fact that they're out of the playoffs. I, I still wish they would give Manny his pills so we could play decent. But, um, <laughs> but it's like, that's the toy department, sports is, and things like that. Church shouldn't be that way. It should, we should be passionate for our church, and I am, but we should be passionate for every element of God's church, everywhere where God's people are gathered together and hold this common faith and hold this shared belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We ought to love that. Because he does. We should look across the parking lot at our neighbors 
and be so thankful to God for them and for, I mean, I look and their parking lot's almost full of cars right now and it's, there are people in there being ministered to and I love that. That's important. I, if we stop caring about the church, then we, we, we begin to lose the heart of God and what he is doing because, because what he does, he is doing primarily and almost exclusively within the church. And that's why Paul is explaining to Timothy, it's really important how you do church. It's really important how you conduct yourself in the place that becomes the foundation for all that God wants to do among Christians and in the world too. And so Paul took church very seriously and wanted to make sure that Timothy did also. And that's and I think that's, that's beautiful here, and it comes through really well. And this leads him to give what many have called one of the first church creeds. A creed was when the church would put together a statement that would sort of summarize in some way what it is that's important, what really matters. And this is, if, if in fact this was considered a creed that often creeds will be quoted, it forms a good little outline for what you believe, and if this is to be considered a creed, it's probably the earliest one. Many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Um, it wasn't really written by the Apostles, but there are churches to this day who quote the Apostles' Creed, and it's full of magnificent truth about the Lord. It does say that Jesus ascended into hell, which is the reason why I'm not too crazy about it. It was probably written in 200 and something AD, but, but it's a great description of the fact that of who God is, and he's, you know, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and talks about the work of Christ and his resurrection bodily and everything. And, and, and so creeds are really nice. Now, if this wasn't a creed, and even if it was, I, my notion is because of the construction of it, perhaps this was one of the first hymns of the church. I'm thinking that this is probably, Paul seemed to be quoting something the way he went through it. It's nothing, obviously, from the Old Testament. And so at, at the time Paul was writing about 62 to 65 AD, something like that, when he wrote 1 Timothy, um, the church had become established and there were certain practices that were in place and perhaps this is the first praise song, the first hymn of the church or one of them. We have references to certain hymns that they would sing and as they would write them. If so, this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful song and it explains in kind of broad strokes what Christianity is all about, really. It calls it the mystery of godliness. Now, I entitled my message this morning, The Mystery of Godliness. It's not because Halloween is coming this week. Mystery isn't something that means spooky or something like that. It, in the Bible, they use the word mystery. It's because it's something that wasn't seen before, but now it's been revealed. So whenever you see mystery in the Bible, think of solved mystery, one that has been uncovered. Couldn't have been seen, and now it's seen. And so he says in verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy. He, 
Again, in the context, he's talking about the church, and he's saying, now here's something we can all agree on. Here's something that we can all say, yes, obviously, this is true. And it's important sometimes for us to boil our beliefs and convictions down to things that we have in common with all believers of all times. And, and this statement and so many creeds of the church um, would be those types of statements, at least in their attempt. Apostles' Creed is one that, again, with the exception of what does it mean that he ascended into hell, pretty much anyone who's a Christian believes in what's in the Apostles' Creed. 325 A.D., in Constantinople, they had the Nicene Council, and they came out with the, with the Creed of Nicaea, another more meticulous description of Christianity as it's believed by everyone who's a Christian. In that case, it was really to clear up some of the heresies about the nature of Jesus and the Trinity and so on. But here he's going, look, nobody can argue about this. Of course, there are people who will argue about it, as we'll see as we get into it, but he's going, this you shouldn't even argue about. Here is what God has revealed, and it wasn't seen before, but in Jesus Christ, the door has been opened to this glorious truth. So let's look at his statement. First of all, the first line of the song, God was manifested in the flesh. Quite a contrast, God and flesh. And the most radical thing that's ever happened in history was when God became a man on Christmas Day, when, when, when Jesus Christ became a baby born in a manger. The Gospel of John expresses it by saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The fact that God would become one of us was not expected. It was a radical thing to happen. For them, God was someone who was far off that you couldn't touch. He dwelt in unapproachable glory. And if he communicated, it was it was obliquely through only certain people at certain times and hundreds of years you wouldn't hear anything from him. And for, for God to come in the flesh, huge. Now, vitally important also, because if Jesus didn't really become a man, then he couldn't be related to us and therefore represent us as the perfect human who could sacrifice himself for us. He couldn't save us unless he was a man. And God loved us so deeply that he was willing to become one of us, to be tempted in every way that we have been tempted, and not to sin, and then to represent us by carrying our sins on himself on the cross. So this miracle of God being manifested in the flesh is just an unbelievable solution to a mystery. In a sense, the mystery was, what are we going to do about the mess that this world is in? And the solution, God was manifested in the flesh. Now, there are people who will argue that the word God shouldn't be there. And if you have an NIV or an NASB, probably ESV, I'm guessing, um, says who was manifested in the flesh, 
And even in our New King James, they footnote it and say, in the older manuscripts, it would, it would say, uh, who instead of God. And I don't want to drag you through a whole bunch of this, but let me just explain how this happens. We have thousands of New Testament manuscripts. The vast majority of them all agree and all have the word God here. There are a couple of the oldest manuscripts that sometimes have variant readings in certain areas, as you'll notice in your footnotes when it's mentioned. There are parts of for instance, in a couple of these older manuscripts, the, you know, a part of the last chapter of Mark isn't included. In John, the story about the woman caught in adultery isn't included. And, and so there are people who say, well, those are really old manuscripts, so we should believe them. Well, primarily, there, for those of you that care, there are three older manuscripts than, that are different than all the rest. Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Alexandrinus. Want to write that down? No, I don't have to. <laughs> but the oldest one is Codex Vaticanus, which doesn't contain 1 Timothy at all, so it's irrelevant. But in Codex Alexandrinus, it does, it's difficult to see whether it's the word God or whether it's the word who. And you may go, what? How in the world, how could that be difficult? Well, give you a real quick Greek lesson. Original Greek manuscripts were written in all capital letters. And so capital letters are different than now in our Greek New Testaments, they're lowercase with capitalizations the way we would use, but they used all caps. And for certain key words, they always used abbreviations because they wanted to make sure scribes didn't make mistakes. So for instance, for the word God, which in Greek is theos, they, they would use the abbreviation theta, which is the TH sound, and sigma, which is S. So it would be like THS. And whenever they used an abbreviation, they put a little straight line at the top of the word to let you know this is the abbreviation because we use it all the time. I still, to this day, when I take notes, if I'm saying God, I just put a theta, which is a, a O with a line through the middle of it. And, and so this is, this is common, and that, that's the way they did things. Now, the difference between a theta and an omicron, an O, is just that little line that goes through the middle. So if you were going to have theos, God, you'd have an O with a line through it and an S, and a straight line across the top. If you were going to say who, the, the pronoun, it would be hos, and it would just be an O with an S, no line in the O, no line above the top. Now, so you understand there's two little lines that make a difference between God and who. So Codex Alexandrinus has a line across the top designating this is an abbreviation, um, which would then eliminate Haas's possibility, but it's faded so that you can't see the line across the the O, which would make it a theta. So it's kind of nebulous. It, easily the line could have faded. And then they've looked at it under a microscope, and I've seen it. And the line across the top that designates it as an abbreviation looks like it was probably in a different ink than the rest of the writing. 
Now that probably means that someone, it was fading and someone wanted to make clear that that's what it was and they did it. Have I lost you completely? Okay, good, you're with me. I'm trying to make this simple. But, and I know you're smart, so. I had somebody comment to me this week who listens to my, listen to my messages and they said, I love the fact that you assume your people are smart enough that you can really talk to them on a high level. So um, I guess I do that. I, I hope so. I hope I respect you that much. So anyway, what is it? Who or God? It could be one or the other, and people really differ. Naturally, everyone, critics always want to say, well, it's not God, because they don't, what they want to say is the idea of Jesus being God didn't come up until much later, that, that disciples or whoever, like the Gospel of John, which was written 40 years later than this, has all kinds of stuff about God. You can't avoid that, but... Certainly, Paul in 62 would not have been making such a clear statement about Jesus being God. However, let's just look at the statement. (laughs) Who was manifested in the flesh? Who? Who's it talking about? There's There's no noun for who to serve as a pronoun unless you go back up to God in the house of God. Now, if you go, well, you know, it's just he. He was manifested in the flesh. Okay. We just said, this is a mystery. Nobody knew it. And miraculously, it was revealed. So I'm going to tell you something that happened. You're not going to believe. It's so spectacular. A man was born, and he had flesh. Like, what? It doesn't even make sense to state it that way. So as far as I'm concerned, it says God. (laughs) Because nothing else would really be a mystery. God was manifested in the flesh. He became one of us. Everything else in Christianity hangs on and hinges on the incarnation. If that didn't happen, if God didn't become a man, we have no reason to have hope or faith at all. The whole plan falls apart if God didn't become a man. If Jesus was God, but he wasn't a man, as some of the Gnostics would say, then he couldn't die for us. But if he was a man and not God, he wouldn't have the power to forgive our sins. He he couldn't have lived a perfect life. He would have, if he had a human father, he inherited sin from Adam and couldn't help us at all. The only way that we have a gospel is if, in fact, God was manifested in the flesh, that the Word became flesh, that God became a man, Jesus Christ, completely God, completely man. As Paul said in Philippians, in him, dwells, or in Colossians 2, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form. Miraculous. Nobody could have made that up. It was revealed. And then the next line says, justified in the Spirit. So you get the Holy Spirit worked in there too. The word justified means to be declared righteous. It doesn't mean made righteous. It means declared righteous, pronounced righteous. So how did the Spirit do, how did the Spirit justify Jesus? 
How did the Spirit verify and, and endorse who Jesus was? Well, I mean, for, for one thing, when uh, Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came down on him as a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But not only that, the Spirit was with him in unbridled ways. The Spirit was with him as he performed miracles. The Spirit was with him as he taught in such a profound way, even as a kid, they're going, where in the world is he getting this stuff? He hasn't been to school. How does he know what he knows? The Spirit was manifested when he talked to the woman at the well and he knew about her her marital history. The Spirit was with him in every miracle that he did, in every teaching that he taught, ultimately in the power for him to raise from the dead. The Holy Spirit was there justifying him all along, tributing the fact that, yes, he is who he is. And not only that, the Spirit hasn't stopped. Because Jesus told the disciples, when I leave, I'm going to send you my Spirit. And he predicted the day of Pentecost. And when the Holy Spirit fell, as Jesus said that he would, and filled the believers, and and amazing things began to happen as the church started, that was all justification of what Jesus said he was and what he said he did. Every time the Holy Spirit moves, it's another proof of who Jesus is. And you know, as the Spirit works in your life, as he convicts you of your sin, as he leads and guides you, as he comforts you when you're in pain, as he strengthens you and helps you through the way, every time something happens in your life that's a manifestation of the Spirit, it's also that testimony, that justification, that's who Jesus was. The Spirit's still here, Jesus said. I'm gonna, if I leave, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to teach you all things. And if you've ever learned anything about God, it's because of the Holy Spirit. If you were drawn to him, it was because of the Holy Spirit. And everything that the Spirit does says, Jesus is who he said he was. He is God. He is your Savior. So then he says, seen by angels. This might seem a little weird to throw this in here. Most other church creeds never included it. A lot of hymns talk about angels, though. But, see, the point was, this isn't, the story of Christianity is not something that was just man-made. There there are many indications of angelic involvement in the process. Angels predicting that he would be born before he was. And then, of course, in Luke 2, there are shepherds out Side Bethlehem on the hillside, keeping watch over their flocks. And it says, Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were so afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Who gets an introduction, a birth announcement like that from angels who then told them where they could go to see the child? But throughout Jesus' life, angels were there to strengthen him when, when he needed it. 
Even right up, well, when he was tempted by Jesus, the angels came and comforted him after that 40 days. When he was there in Gethsemane, ready to face death, sweating drops of blood, angel was there holding him up and and helping him and encouraging. Angels witnessed his death. Angels were the first witnesses of the resurrection, even before people got there. People saw angels, and the angels were the ones that told the people what had happened. And then later, as Jesus ascended into heaven, and they're like, hey, where'd he go? There were angels there going, hey, don't just stand gazing up into heaven. This same Jesus is going to come back again, attesting to that truth. And angels didn't stop there. Angels continue to be involved in our lives in ways that we'll probably never know until we get to heaven. But the Bible teaches that angels are there with us protecting us and guiding us. The Bible teaches that when we pray, angels go to work on our behalf. And, I, and some of it's a mystery to this day. When we get to heaven, we'll probably be able to meet up with our guardian angels and find out what they did and where they were. I've heard people say, boy, I have a few questions to ask my guardian angel about where he was. But I think more likely... <laughs> They're going to go, are you kidding me? Do you know what you put me through? Think about all the things that you've done that could have done you in. Think about all the times that I blinded a police officer. Think about all the, you know, and it's like angels. Oh, I've heard some amazing stories that I love to hear, and I, I totally believe them. I had a, uh, one of my professors in college had been a missionary in China, and when China fell to the communists. They had to evacuate, but they weren't able to get everybody out of their mission station, and there were mobs going through and just robbing and rioting and and killing people, and they came to the mission station, and they were just watching. They had no weapons or anything, and and the people just came up the driveway and then just stopped and turned around and left. They all had weapons and everything, and And later on, years later, when he was able to go back to China, he actually encountered somebody from that village who was a part of that mob. And he said, I was just wondering, why did you guys spare us? Why why did you do that? They go, are you kidding with those guards that you had? And they go, he goes, we didn't have any guards. What guards? He said, there were two like 12 foot tall guys all shiny at your front door with big swords and we just decided to go next door. It was, and I mean, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out, man, these guys have been working overtime on our behalf. And whenever they do, whenever you escape a bad situation, whenever you get bailed out, whenever something happens that's miraculous, don't be surprised to find out that it was an angel doing it all along. And again, witnessing of Jesus and just saying, hey, this is real. I can show you. I, I can prove it to you. Angels were watching. The angels are fascinated, by the way, by our salvation. They can't relate to it because no one ever died for an angel. A third of the angels fell, and they're just going to go to hell. Nobody loved them enough to become an angel and to die for them. And They look at us, and they go, how in the world can you people not accept the Son of God who died for you? So they are amazed at what they see in us. But they're also rejoicing every time one person comes to Christ. 
So this isn't just a human phenomenon. Angels are involved as well. And then he says, preached among the Gentiles. <laughs> now this doesn't seem like a big deal to us because most of the time when we preach, it's to Gentiles. But you have to appreciate Christianity grew up as a Jewish sect. In fact, Christianity, all it is is Judaism with the ending tacked onto it. And, and so in the early church, the, the least likely thing for them to do would have been to declare the gospel to Gentiles. They hated Gentiles. Jewish men would wake up every morning and pray and thank God I'm not a Gentile. They also said, or a woman, but we'll leave that out of it. But, I mean, they hated Gentiles. So there's no way in the world that they're going to go, we've got this new faith, we, we see what, you know, our Messiah has come, let's tell the Gentiles. There's, it, it wouldn't happen. That's crazy for that to happen. And in fact, the truth is that if they had just kept it to the Jews... Christianity would have exploded among the Jews and there wouldn't have been all the persecution. The reason people had issues with Christianity is because it was reaching Gentiles. The Jewish religious people hated it because they hate Gentiles. The Gentiles hated it because you're trying to convert us and tell us that we need to become Jewish and we hate Jews. There's nothing that's more contradictory and ridiculous than for a Christian to be anti-Semitic, for a Christian to not like Jews. You don't get it. We are grafted in. We are artificial Jews, only he makes it real. You can't hate Jews and, and love Jesus. All we did was catch up to Judaism, that's all. But he goes, it's amazing that that message was given to Gentiles because humanly speaking, no Jew would have wanted to do that. And think of the people that God used. Peter, simple fisherman, but very Jewish. He couldn't stand Gentiles. And yet God came to him in a dream and told him, first of all, he said, here, have a ham sandwich. And he's like, no, nah, no way. And he goes, no, if I say it's clean, it's clean. And he said, a guy's going to come banging on your door. Go with him. And there was the guy, and they took him to the house of Cornelius and Peter shared the gospel with Gentiles and they got saved and filled with the Spirit. Peter would not have done something like that on his own. He wouldn't have come up with the idea. And Paul, a guy who, who persecuted Christians, who as a Pharisee just despised Gentiles, ended up becoming the apostle to the Gentiles. All of his energy focused on preaching to Gentiles. That just doesn't happen. Preaching to Gentiles is not something that you can humanly explain. It just wouldn't happen. But he says it's happened. And it's a testimony, again, to this radical transformation that happened when God became flesh, when he came and, and saved us. Not only preached among the Gentiles, but believed on in the world. It's amazing that anybody believed this story. Isaiah said that in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To buy into something, to join up with a group of people that meant you were probably going to be killed? How would people believe it? 
but people are still believing it 2,000 years later. And I'll personalize it for you. Think about what you went through in order to be brought to the point where you accepted Jesus Christ. Think about where you were when you didn't know him. Think about how unlikely it was that you, of all people, would be believing in Jesus Christ. And for many of us, for most of us perhaps, we came from the most unlikely place possible. Now, people could say to me, well, you know, but you were raised in the church. Yeah, that's true. But that's not what brought me to Jesus Christ, believe me. When you're young and you see what church is like, sometimes it'll drive you away. And for me, my father was paranoid schizophrenic, preaching at me for hours and hours, forcing me to read the Bible. That's not going to draw you to Jesus. That's going to drive you away from Jesus. I was in a super legalistic church that, where it turns out, you know, as a kid, you learn that all these people that are judging you, all the leaders of the church are all having sex with the other leaders of the church. And it's like, there's no way, there's no way I want that to be a part of my life. And right at the time of my life, when I could finally be on my own, when I turned 18, and now culture was attracting me, I looked at what was happening in the world in the late 60s and early 70s. I loved the music. I still love it to this day. I loved the cultural expressions. I loved the radical nature of it. Everything within that culture was saying, this is perfect for you. And yet Jesus Christ came along and said, I want your life. I love you. Don't tell me that happened because of my godly upbringing, baloney. Most of my, and I'm thankful for, for some of the training that I got, but I'll tell you, the bulk of what I received as a kid would drive you away from God in a stampede, and yet, here I am. I've devoted my life to the truth of the statements in this book of what God has done. And it's a miracle that I believe, and it's a miracle that you believe too. It's a miracle that this message has gone all over the world and people in all cultures, people of all ages, people of every racial background, they've believed. And that, nobody could have predicted it. It was a mystery until it happened in the church of Jesus Christ. And finally, received up in glory. Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, this doesn't say that he's going to return. Other creeds, the Apostles' Creed and things like that would include that. Um, but again, he's talking here about mysteries that have already been revealed. And so his return, in a sense, is still somewhat mysterious to us. When it happens, we'll get it. Right now, we just argue about it. But this is something nobody can argue. It went to heaven. And, and that's the capstone. Because that proved that he accomplished what he came to accomplish. That put the stamp of approval on everything that he taught. That he was received into heaven. And in case you wonder, some people have seen him there. Paul on the road to Damascus was knocked down and heard from Jesus and saw him. Stephen, as he was stoned as the first martyr of the church, looked up and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
I believe that. He's there. And the fact that he is there means he can take me there with him. If you can go yourself, that's the hard part. Taking somebody else along, if he says it's a done deal, I believe it. And all of this, it's the simple story of Jesus. If you argue with it, you're just not a Christian. Make up your own religion. But if you believe it, it's changed your life. makes all the difference in the world. It means in in as tangible a way as possible, the God who made you loves you desperately and wants to spend eternity with you. And this is what makes the church the church. This is why I love the church. This is why I care about the church. This is why it matters to me how the church does things and how we appear to the world and how we communicate our message. This is why I get upset when people misuse the church. That's why I'm so protective of the church. Because I know what's behind it. I know how much it matters. I know how much God loves it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've done for us. This little outline in this little song, just a beautiful portrayal of of the most important thing that ever happened in history and all of the evidence that's flown forth from it since. Thank you for touching our lives, for drawing us to belief, for each of us giving us the faith to at one point All of a sudden, we didn't believe and there was no reason to believe, but somehow we believed because you gave us that gift. And we're grateful. Help us to enjoy it. And help us to treat the church like it matters. Help us to love the church as much as you love the church. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.